and welcome to 17 Minutes of Science, our show that explores the world of science and how it affects both the starting academic and the seasoned professional. I am Hannah Houston, and today I am joined by Dr. Brittany Graham. Britt is currently a postdoc in Eric Jorgensen's lab at the University of Utah after joining in October of 2021. The lab studies the molecular basis of synaptic transmission, focusing on the mechanisms of synaptic vesicle fusion and synaptic vesicle regeneration. Her research uses C. elegans. Britt earned her PhD in May of 2020 from the University of Leeds, which focused on modeling single amino acid variants in the ryanodine receptor in C. elegans. Welcome, Britt. Hi. It's really nice to have you here today. Um, so your PhD research focused on the ryanodine receptor. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, so the specific disease that I was studying is called malignant hyperthermia. It's relatively rare. It's about one in 50,000 people or less, but it's generally characterized by single amino acid changes in the ryanodine receptor. Um, but we thought that maybe there were other effects of these variants in the Riandin receptor. So um, we wanted to kind of look at that in a bit more depth. Um, so while mutations or variants in RYR1 are thought to act predominantly on skeletal muscle, we thought maybe there were effects in nervous tissue of these variants. Um, so we put known MH or malignant hypothermia causing variants in C. elegans, Riandin receptors, and then we can study the effects. Um, so we found that beyond just conferring the malignant hypothermia disease, they also showed effects on locomotion in our model, which had never been seen before. So it was really interesting and also suggested kind of a neuromuscular function, not just a muscular function. Fascinating. Um... I was wondering if you could tell us a, little, a bit more about malignant hyperthermia. What is it and why should we care about it? Yeah, so although it's relatively rare, um, it could also just be underdiagnosed because the only time that it's really ever seen is after people have general anesthetic. Um, it's basically a severe reaction to certain drugs used in anesthesia. And it basically you'll have a dangerously high body temperature, rigid muscle, um, muscle spasms and a rapid heart rate. And if it's not really, really rapidly treated, it can be fatal. Um, and yeah, so it's interesting to study, but it's also interesting to study due to the effects that it might be having on other people in the population who, although they don't have this reaction to anesthesia, might be having, you know, skeletal muscle effects. Hmm, interesting. Um... So for this research, you use clinical variant C. elegans CRISPR models. How did these help move your research forward? Um, so for our research, it was really important that we used a clinically, clinically relevant random receptor mutation so we could really link it back to MH and the human situation. Um, so we generated eight strains that carried eight different known MH-causing variants. Um, and previously, our lab had used extra chromosomal array strains carrying these variants, but we were really concerned about what overexpression um, might do for like localization, but also for masking or exaggerating phenotypes because we were trying to look for, you know, potentially quite subtle phenotypes that haven't been noticed before in human or mouse models. Um, we didn't want overexpression to to change those at all. So it was really important that it be endogenous levels um, and clinically relevant known MH mutations. 
Yeah. So why are C. elegans then, which is the model that you've chosen, why are they particularly well suited for this type of research? I, I personally love C. elegans for many reasons. We do too. If you ask anyone like, well, why is C. elegans a good model? They're real off, like short lifespan, transparent. You can grow them in large numbers. They're a hermaphrodite. But my the reason I care is that they are anatomically simpler than humans while still very similar on the molecular level. So you can, you know, the protein that we looked at, there's, while there's three random receptors in humans, there's only one in C. elegans, but it's something like 60% similarity and 40% identity as the human random receptor. So actually very similar. Um, and all of the variants that we changed at that locus in the wild type had the same residue as the human wild type. Um, so I, for that, they were obviously brilliant. Um, and it was, I could study them in a whole organism. So traditionally MH research can be done in muscle biopsies. However, that excludes all nervous tissue. It's, you know, or you might have a little bit of nervous tissue that's in the biopsy, but I could look at this in a whole system and say how it affects a whole system and how it affects a whole system in aging as well. Cause I looked at younger and older animals. Aging is a huge problem um, with, you know, our aging population. So locomotion is really important to try and understand how we can help older people get up and about. And to age a mouse takes a really long time. To age the elegans takes two weeks. So it's much easier to do. Yeah, so much simpler, but also very translatable to humans. Yes, exactly. Um, in your research, what assays or tools do you use? Okay, so um, beyond CRISPR to generate the strains, which was obviously a really key tool, I did a lot of pharmacological assays. So obviously the halothane or the anesthetic assays, I used halothane, which is a known anesthetic that induces uh, malignant hypothermia. But I also looked at effects of um, aldocarb and levamisole to try and work out if these variant random receptors were having an effect pre or postsynaptically. Um, at neuromuscular junctions. And then I also did a, a really cool technique where I videoed C. elegans crawling on an agar surface. And then I used tracking software to basically pick out that, that wave that they create and then compare things like amplitude, wavelength, frequency, speed. And that really led us to understand that there were very subtle locomotion defects that I wouldn't have been able to really analyze with my eyes. I could, I could see, you know, oh, this strain does this or that strain does that, but I couldn't really quantify it without using this um, videoing and tracking software. So that was really uh, quite a cool and fun tool to use. Yeah, it's awesome how uh, technology can really help move our research forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, before that, I would have been able to say, this one has a slight effect. I did a thrashing assay to see that, you know, how they thrash at different rates. Um, but that couldn't really tell me much more than they thrash at different rates. Whereas looking at how this one might have a tighter curvature than that one can begin to get to like, oh, maybe it's got um, excess calcium release. So it's got a, a tighter muscle contraction than this one, which doesn't make as tight a curve. And you can really begin to get into the molecular detail of what's happening. Right. And there's much less room for user error too. 
Oh, absolutely. I can't keep up with the clicker and how fast they thrash. You're not alone. <laughs> um, what do you see as the next steps for this research? Um, so I, my thing I found most interesting were these subtle locomotion differences, which I should say they weren't in the presence of halothane, the drug that is thought to kind of activate the disease. Um, they were just there all the time. And I think, well, this is a giant gene. So there's a giant protein. So there's probably, you know, people walking around with variants in this protein that while they might not cause malignant hypothermia, it might affect the, the function of the protein. And maybe, you know, that person can't run as fast as that person or something like that. And I think it'd be really interesting to study those subtle locomotion differences in more detail, maybe in a mammalian model to begin with. Um, there's a lot of differences between people that we just put down as like, oh, a lot of variation, but maybe we could begin to find genetic causes for some of this variation, which could then go on to saying like, oh, well, if someone has this mutation, maybe they walk more slowly as a young person, maybe as an old person, they can't walk at all. And then we can begin to look at therapies and things that might help. So that's where I would ideally like to see it go, um, would be to try and see if we can find these subtle locomotion differences in a mammalian model. And so you, this research was done in C. elegans. You have expressed that you really enjoy C. elegans. Would you yeah. ever want to move into a mouse model yourself? Um, I don't know. I, I don't know if I could personally work with mice. I appreciate the research that is done with them. I, I really do, but I'm not sure if I could. I have worked with um, zebrafish and Drosophila before, and I always go back to C. elegans. They're so easy to work with. Um, but also my, my personal feelings might get in the way if I started working with mice models. I think that, you know, the, there's a benefit to all models and that they can definitely intertwine in really lovely ways. But, you know, everyone still has their favorites. Yeah, and I know that my research isn't necessarily translational to humans without people doing work in mice. So I see it as a very important step, but I also see as research in Seattle against is a really fundamental first step. Totally. And so you mentioned you've worked a little bit with zebrafish and Drosophila as well. Because um, my next question was going to be, have you always worked with Seattle against? It sounds like you have some exposure to other models too. Yes. So... I started working with C. elegans in my undergraduate. Um, I did a final project and I really enjoyed it. And I immediately went into a PhD working with C. elegans as well. And then during that time, I was fortunate enough to do an internship. And that's where I worked with zebrafish a little bit. Um, and then between my PhD and my postdoc, I worked with Drosophila a little bit as well. And it's nice to be exposed to different models. Um, but yeah, I always call back to the worms. Yes, uh, well, I mean, we are a worm company and a zebrafish company, so we're very, we're very partial to those two models as well. Um, so to change gears just a little bit, um, like many of us, COVID has impacted our lives in a plethora of ways, um, but it sounds like it's really impacted your career path as well. So could you tell us a little bit more about your, your life over the last couple of years with COVID? Yeah, so I completely understand that it affected everyone's career and everyone's life. I did feel like I had particularly terrible timing. 
Um, so I submitted my thesis on the 26th of February, 2020. Didn't have a job lined up and thought, I'll take a couple of weeks to relax and then I'll start my applications. I'll be working within like six weeks. And then obviously we went into um, lockdown less than a month later in England. Uh, I actually had this postdoc position lined up in Utah. So I was like, okay, maybe I can find something to tide me over. And then they stopped processing all visas. So couldn't come and start my job. And they stopped, everyone stopped hiring. So I was just kind of stuck. I got very lucky and I managed to get a temporary position at a big farmer, GlaxoSmithKline, as a microbiologist, which isn't really related to my field, but it was a job and it was slightly relevant. So that was fine. And then I actually got a job at Oxford Brookes University as a research technician. And that was in labs with C. elegans and Drosophila. So it was much more related. Um, and actually some of the work or some of the uh, techniques I was exposed to Oxford Brookes, I'm now doing here. So that was a really great opportunity. It was off track um, and ideally I would have just moved straight here and started my postdoc. So I had about a year and a half of just trying to get jobs, um, waiting for my visa. And then, yeah, finally I got my visa and I'm, I'm so happy to finally be here. Yeah, it's, uh, it sounds like you were able to kind of cobble stuff together to make it work in the meantime, but um, you're finally, you know, back in the States because um, this is not your first time in Utah, as you told me earlier. Um, and uh, you're now working in Eric Jorgensen's lab. So can you tell us a little bit more about the work you're doing now? Yeah, so still working with C. elegans, obviously, um, but much more nervous system based than kind of muscular based. Um, recently, I've learned how to do electron microscopy, which is just incredible. Um, I really enjoy it. It's hard work, but uh, in, an incredibly cool technique. So I use electron microscopy to actually look at neuromuscular junctions in the worm. And I'm doing this to seek to further develop our knowledge of neurotransmission. Um, so I'm working on a few projects, but most of them are to do with ultrafast endocytosis, which was um, kind of discovered in Eric's lab in 2013. So it hasn't had loads of research on it. Um, so one of my projects is trying to look at the role of phospholipids in ultrafast endocytosis. And another project looks at kind of the acidification of synaptic vesicles for their filling and priming for um, release. So essentially what I do is I freeze worms at a really high pressure and very cold temperature. So we don't get ice crystals. I stain them, I embed them in plastic, and then I section them and image them with an electron microscope. And I can see the synapses. I can see the muscle, um, which still excites me. I still take pictures of things and send it to people like, look at this mitochondria that I just found. Um, but then I can see like the number and size of synaptic vesicles, whether they're docked for release, um, whether there's ultrafast endocytosis happening or if we perturb that, um, and yeah, how proteins are taken up and things like that. So I'm only new in the lab, so I don't have any results to share with you, but uh, watch this space hopefully, and there'll be some stuff coming out soon. Yeah, it, I mean, when you were talking about it, I was like, oh, I bet she gets some really cool pictures using that. <laughs> My youngest um, sister has a bit of a background in neuroscience. I sent her pictures of things and I'm like, can you name this organelle? <laughs> it's like a little pop quiz. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, so it sounds like you've, with your postdoc, you've transitioned your research focus a little bit. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this transition and, um, you know, maybe if there's ways that you're able to marry the two research focuses you've had as well? Yeah, so interestingly, someone in our lab actually uh, looks a little bit at UNC68, which is the reactivin receptor in C. elegans. So I'm not on that project, but it's always nice to hear it's in a completely different way to how I looked at it, because obviously they're looking at it in neurons, not in muscle. But that's what I was trying to get to towards the end of my project my PhD because at first it was muscle and then we switched and thought maybe it's in the neurons that it's having a big effect so that's great to kind of just hear what's going on with them um transitioning was I mean I, I still feel like I'm transitioning sometimes in lab meetings I'm like what was that what did they say and I write things down that I have to look up later um but it's really nice to constantly be learning I think Toward the end of my PhD, I was very comfortable in my knowledge of that topic. And it's nice to be thrown into something that I'm not comfortable in. And I have to keep working and keep thinking and keep learning new proteins and how they interact because it's very complex. And there's a whole bunch of things that are all called synapto something and trying to keep them straight and what they will do. Um, I was fortunate that someone else joined our lab not long before me. So we can kind of bond and help each other in learning and saying do you know what this is no do you but um, the lab's very helpful and you know I'll say like in the lab meeting today I had to ask the question because I was like wait I've forgotten what what does this do again and everyone's really helpful in understanding and helping me learn so sounds like you're in you're definitely landed in a really good environment and yeah being a lifelong learner you know there's no better opportunity than it sounds like you have right now Exactly. Yeah, I feel very fortunate. Well, that's wonderful. Um, well, that's our 17 minutes for today. So um, it goes by really quickly. <laughs> really fast. Um, but I just want to thank you so much, Britt, for joining us today. It was wonderful to hear more about your research and um, you know, your career path as well. well. It was lovely to be here and chat with you today. Thank you, Hannah. Awesome. Well, thank you, everyone, for tuning in to 17 Minutes of Science today. Um, we will see you next time.